We ask now uh, for the glory of Jesus to be manifest, made clear through the preaching, teaching, holding forth of your word. So be glorified, Lord Jesus. We pray now against the effects of the evil one, uh, anything that would keep us from seeing and savoring Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would tear it down, and we pray that you would make Jesus big now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, Three Rivers Church. Happy New Year to you. What a neat year that lies in front of us. Um, God did some really cool things in this past year in multiplying campuses and giving us an abundance of future church planters and pastors that we're training. And how cool is that, right? And so uh, we grow through multiplication, and I'm so very thankful for that. And, and FYI, a uh, little announcement for you. On January the 13th and 14th, that's coming up. We're going to have training for uh, pastors, church planters on on planning churches. And we're going to be training our guys on how to plant a church and our DNA. And that's open to the entire church. We say every disciple, a church planter, right? That's how the New Testament teaches it. So if you're interested in learning the DNA of our church and multiplication and how and why we multiply, um, you're welcome to attend that. All I need you to do is email me. I put a little announcement on our Facebook page. It's got my email address. There's a card in the back. It's got my email on it. If you're interested in attending that, for Three Rivers people, it costs nothing. So email me, sign up. But if you email me and sign up, there'll be things provided for you. If you don't show up, I'll find you, throat punch you, and it'll be over, okay? So if you really want to come, just kidding, I'm not going to throat punch anybody, possibly. But if you really want to come, email Love for you to come. You learn that, and who knows, God may use you to multiply the church, the kingdom of God somewhere on the face of this planet as he sends you. You'll be well equipped, okay? You are going to get breakfast out of it on that Saturday morning, so that's why I need you to kind of email me. Right? I'd hate to have an extra Bojangles chicken and biscuit. Don't know what we would do with that. I'm sure someone would consume it. So... You can email me, let me know you'll be coming January 13th and 14th. That's Friday evening, Saturday morning. It's a four-day training. We're going to do it in really about six hours. So it'll be packed, okay? Cool? Very good. Are you, did y'all party till like three? I don't know if I can function, right? We're good. Is everybody good? There's coffee. If you need some, you can feel free to go get a little extra, get a little juice. Need you to be participant this morning. Acts 18, 1 to 17. We're moving back into the book of Acts. And we're going to see today in Acts 18, 1 to 17, the planting of the church at Corinth. We're going to see the planting of the church at Corinth. And really, the banner over this is not so much the planting of the church at Corinth. We're going to see the church at Corinth established. But it's going to be the kingdom advance happening through weakened yet empowered servants. That God advances His kingdom. Yes, the church at Corinth is going to be planted. But He doesn't do so through super apostles, super disciples, super gifted podcasters, great bloggers, pretty people who talk well. God advances His kingdom through weakened yet empowered servants. Acts 18 1 to 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law. See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Give you a little background. To this point, Paul has preached in Cyprus... Antioch of Pisidia, different Antioch that he was launched out of. Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and now Corinth. And as we go back and look at all that we studied in Acts, it's clear Paul has faced abundant difficulty. Since coming to Europe, he's been beaten at Philippi faced governmental rejection at Thessalonica and Berea. And finally, he faced the snobbish indifference of Athens. No doubt the gospel, though, has taken root in these places, and kingdom fruit has been produced. We read about that fruit in the book of Acts, as well as the letters of the New Testament, in which Paul writes back to these churches that he has planted to encourage them. And to address various topics and issues that have been raised due to the advance of the kingdom of God into broken context and redeeming and fixing things. So, when Silas and Timothy arrive at Corinth in verse 5, they're going to bring news about the Thessalonians regarding their standing firm in the faith. You can read about that in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6-10. to So, they're going to bring news that, hey Paul, those Thessalonians that you preached to, that we ministered among, they're standing firm in the faith. Those two guys are also going to have with them a missionary offering from Philippi. 2 Corinthians 11, 9 and Philippians 4, 14 and 15. So, people they've ministered to and preached the gospel to are now supporting the ministry. And this is in addition to the nice and beautiful reunion with his team, Silas and Timothy. So Paul does get to taste the fruit of his labor. But in today's passage, Paul finds himself in need of some direct encouragement from the Lord. 
and a reprieve in the onslaught of difficulty as he is now in the city of Corinth, 50 miles from Athens, a most difficult city. Because we have little ears in the room, I'm going to be very careful with how I state what I have here for you next. For some 500 years, the verb to Corinthianize meant to become exceptionally immoral. Deviation was rampant. So when Paul writes Romans 1, 26 to 28, he's describing Corinth. So for Paul, no break from the hard work of the mission and no normal situation. Paul, possibly, has begun to understand the pattern of his ministry. Preach. See God be faithful in bringing people to believe the gospel. See miracles. Plant churches. Then get beat down. Get ran out of town. Get stoned. Get slandered. Be thought to be a backwards hayseed with backward ideas. I don't know if you noticed or not, but Paul didn't get beat up in Corinth. He didn't get stoned. He doesn't get ran out of town. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in just a moment, he, after 18 months of good, solid, just peaceful ministry, when there is an uprising, he doesn't get blamed and doesn't get run out of town. Nice change for Paul. But the centerpiece of this passage is the Lord's vision to Paul to encourage him in the work. As much and maybe more so than the work itself. Thus the little banner we put over this passage. The church at Corinth is planted and the kingdom advances through weakened yet empowered servants. Because yes, it is about the kingdom of God advancing the gospel of the kingdom of the rule of Christ. Coming to to take root and fix everything that has been broken. Saving the lost. Fixing the domains of society. Bringing all things under the rule of Christ, but God does that through the vehicle of His people. And He does it here in one whose pattern of ministry has been very hard. So, we're going to see as the centerpiece of our passage the Lord's encouragement to Paul. And we're going to see that through a weakened individual, yet empowered, the kingdom will advance. And there is great encouragement for us in the work As we look at this passage. So what do we see? What does it mean? Point number one. If you're looking at the blog, by the way, MitchJolly.com. And the blog is new. I've been working on that hard for a couple of weeks. I'm not tech savvy guy. So when not tech savvy guy figures out how to make the interwebs look cool. Like it's a miracle. So there's some really cool things there for you to see. And hope it makes sense. So on the blog, you'll see these notes. They're available. Here's our first point. What do we see from this passage? What does it mean? First point of two, the Lord encourages His servant in the work. The Lord encourages His servant in the work. Look at verse 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Now notice here, nothing has happened to Paul at Corinth. He hasn't been beaten up, whipped, put in jail, scorned, nothing. He's preaching. I mean, they're not believing, but... 
He's not being physically abused. In verse 9 to 10, the Lord says, do not be afraid. Again, kind of bringing out what I showed you in a little bit of background here. Paul's pattern of ministry is preach the gospel, see people get saved and get beat up. And, and Paul, you've, you've got to remember, he's not a superhuman. He's a person just like us. And we read about Paul's ministry, it's easy to sit Paul up as this super special, super apostle, this super special guy, a guy who's like sits next to Jesus, like on the hierarchy of coolness. That's, that's not who Paul is. Paul is a person like you and like me. And so the pattern of life being beat up, beat down, thought backward, kicked out of town will grind on you after a while. And nobody in this room, save maybe one of you, has ever tasted that. We don't know what that's like. We don't know what it's like to have ministry grind on us like it did Paul. And so Paul is preaching at Corinth and the Lord sees fit to encourage Paul in the work. And he starts by revealing himself in a vision and he says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. The Lord encourages his servant in the work. The Lord commands Paul to not be afraid. He starts by commanding. And by the way, the first two statements from the Lord are commands. They're not suggestions. They're not good ideas. They're commands. And the Lord says to Paul, do not fear. And my hunch is, because the pattern of Paul's ministry is to get beat up, the now temptation is to be afraid. And so what does the Lord tell him to do? Do not fear, because fear can tempt him to be silent. Fear can tempt him to go into hiding. Fear can tempt him to stop the work. Fear can tempt him to be quiet. And so the Lord says, do not be afraid. The Lord taught us this, right? The Lord said, they can do nothing but take your physical life. And after that, there's nothing else they can do. So therefore, don't fear man, fear God. And so the Lord has to remind Paul, don't be afraid. Don't operate in fear. The second command, keep on speaking. My hunch is because God told him to not be afraid and then told him to go on speaking, fear may cause him to be silent. And the silence of the gospel will not result in the salvation of the people or the repair of the city. So therefore, don't be afraid. And Paul, whatever you do, keep preaching. Keep preaching. Keep speaking. And do not be silent. Why? Verse 10. For I am with you. The Lord promises His presence. Paul Regardless of how it feels, you are not alone. I am with you. And then the Lord promised one other thing. And no one will attack you to harm you. The Lord promised physical protection. And I I want to put this caveat on it here. And we'll talk about this when we talk about how to obey this passage. The Lord promised physical protection this time. Not a blanket protection. From now on, Paul, it's going to be roses for you. I'm going to put protection over you from now on and nobody's ever going to touch you again. No. 
This time, Paul, this time, no one will attack you to harm you. So the Lord commands him to not be afraid, commands him to keep speaking, promises his presence, and then promise physical protection this time. So the Lord encourages Paul. Paul needed this. We're going to make some some observations on how to obey this in just a minute, so hang tight with me. Second observation, and it's our final observation, and we'll unpack it, and then we'll come to how to obey this passage. The Lord also provided situational encouragement as the kingdom advances. The Lord provided situational encouragement. The Lord himself gave him commands, gave him promises, but then he also provided some situational encouragement as the kingdom advances. Look at verse 1 to 8 and verse 11 to 17. Number one, under the second observation, Paul made deep friendships forged with long-term partners. Verse 1 and 2, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Paul and his work at Corinth forged deep and long-term partners, and that was a great gift of the Lord. Because as you read on in Acts and as you read the other letters of Paul, you're going to find Aquila and Priscilla are long-term deep friends of Paul. They have community together. They do ministry together. They do life together. And we'll see here in just a moment in verse 3 and 4, they even work together in engaging domains. God gave Paul deep, deep relationships. Listen to me very carefully here. One of the great practical situational encouragements of the kingdom of God are the long-term forged ministry partnerships we have with each other in community. I mean, these right here are people Paul will mention often. He loves them. He will go to war with them. He will fight for them. He will preach beside them. He will work with them. They get dirty together. They eat together. They do life together. They earn an income together. They are bound together. Listen very, very carefully. We shun with the greatest practical situational encouragement to the kingdom when we shun community in the kingdom. There is nothing more grace-saturated for you. Listen, I want to say this, and and I'm just going to put this out there as, as, as a thought for you to chew on a little bit. Don't look for the verse 9 and 10 of Jesus showing up in a vision if there is no practical community had on the front end. We can't bypass one of God's means of grace and community looking for another one somewhere else. One of the first things God gives His people is being together, united under one vision, one purpose, one mission. We see it in the garden, right? God put Adam together with Eve in community, two together. Jesus even gave the apostles instruction, when you go out, go alone, go by twos. Why? Because God Himself is in community, in Trinity. And so God doesn't create the church in isolation. We are a body together. And Paul has forged deep ministry, long-term partner relationships. That is a great gift of grace to him. Remember, remember, his two buddies are stuck back in another city. And he's alone. And God gave him Aquila and Priscilla. Deep friendships forged with long-term partners. You can't do kingdom life without kingdom fellowship. 
Kingdom fellowship looks like commitment to one another under the common mission, under covenant relationship, under the mission of the local church. Paul had that with these, and there was a great and it was a great gift from the Lord for Paul. So the Lord provided some situational encouragement through these deep friendships that he forged with Aquila and Priscilla. Number two underneath this second observation is Paul had fruitful domain engagement as a means of support and disciple making. He had fruitful domain engagement. Now, if you're new to Three Rivers, we talk about domain engagement. And this is another reason it would be really good for you to come to this training on January 13th and 14th. We do a whole section on engaging domains of society. This, this, we don't do programs. There are no programs at Three Rivers. You're looking for ministry programs? We don't do programs. We do domain engagement. Domain engagement is the means of God's kingdom of every disciple making disciples. The command to disciple the nations doesn't belong to pastors, doesn't belong to special missionaries, doesn't belong to special forces Christians. It belongs to every disciple. Therefore, God has wired us differently to to, to be good at certain jobs. So that as we go, because if we were all good at the same job, we'd all be clustered over here in the same job and everything else wouldn't have any Christians in it. But God has so wired the body that their eyes and ears and toes and hands and fingers, right? And 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 the then the toe does what the toe only can do. And the hand does only what the hand can do, so that as the hand does what the hand can do where the hand is located, the hand is making disciples. You understand metaphorically where I'm at here. His hands can break off the body and go work. No, no, you understand. You are wired differently. And God has so gifted you to engage that domain and you make disciples there. And guess what happens when you make disciples? You can plant churches. And then the pattern of the New Testament is after the church is planted, then you appoint pastors. Right? And so... God gave Paul fruitful domain engagement as a means of support and disciple making. Verse 3 and 4. And because he was of the same trade, so Aquila and Priscilla share the same domain. He stayed with them and worked, for they were what? Tent makers by trade. Paul, Aquila and Priscilla make tents. Literally, make tents. Tent maker has become an adjective in Christian subcultures to describe bivocational ministry, which I was for so very long, sometimes tri-vocational. When in fact, tent making was Paul's actual job. Paul engaged the domain of business in making tents for the Roman army and any other person or business that needed shelter. One of the most important activities we can engage in is using our domain of engagement to subdue creation and make disciples. And that is the example Paul set here. Remember, Paul's a tent maker. And God used a tent maker to write a majority of the New Testament and be an apostle to all these places and plant churches. If God can use a tent maker to plant churches, what can he do with me? Wow. And so Paul earned a living. He made deep friendships with fellow tent makers and used that as a means of making disciples. One of the reasons Paul had such great access to the places he went is because he engaged in the domain of business. This is a little side note. This is not in the notes. A little side note. 
one of the challenges to current church planting and pastoral ministry is far too many pastor-type people can only do one thing. And they want to start a church and pastor a church so that they can have a job. And if that is the reason you start churches to have a job, you're starting churches for the wrong reason. You need to get out and go do something else. One of the greatest needs in the church today are pastors and leaders who can do something other than pastor. I went to graduate school, get a master's degree in theology and biblical languages, and there were guys who, no shame, zero shame, sat in class saying the only reason they're there to get a master's degree so they can get a bigger church with a bigger salary. No wonder the church in America is broke. Because you got fools preaching, and they're only there because they got a better paycheck. If a man won't pastor for free, he won't pastor when it's paid. Paul's making tents to do ministry. And as he's doing his business, great things are happening. This little quote here uh, for you that's just beautiful. And the, the, on the blog, you can see the footnote where I pulled this from. The international job market in today's business world is an argument for tent making, adjectivally speaking to doing ministry while you're working a job, because it does not exist by accident, but by God's design. The secular job is not an inconvenience. I want you to hear encouragement, church. Hear this, okay? It's not an inconvenience, but the God-given context in which tent makers live out the gospel in a winsome, wholesome, non-judgmental way, demonstrating personal integrity, doing quality work, and developing caring relationships. The international business world is God's repopulation program, transferring millions of hard-to-reach people into freer countries and opening doors for Christians in harder-to-enter countries so that many can hear the gospel. Paul had access because he was a tent maker. You will have access because of what you can do. That professional M's and professional pastors will never have. Why? Because you have a job. That job's full of lost people. And when you disciple lost people, guess what you're doing? You're doing what Paul did. Just like Paul. Isn't that cool? Same resources Paul had. Matter of fact, he didn't even have the finished New Testament yet. You do. Isn't that cool? You got better stuff than Paul had. You got the interwebs. You can point people. If you're afraid to tell them, you can point them to a website that will tell them about Jesus. There's all kinds of options in front of you. Right? Paul used his domain. And God gave him the practical and situational encouragement of fruitful domain engagement. Good business. Making an income. Working with people. Preaching the gospel. Third here under our second observation, verse 4 to 8. Paul found himself occupied with the Word. Listen, this is cool. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word. I underline that phrase in my Bible because that's just beautiful. He was occupied with the Word. Now, keep in mind here, he's occupied with the Word while he's making tents. Do you see it? 
It's not like being occupied with the Word kept him from making tents. And it's not like making tents kept him from the Word. While he's making tents, he's occupied with the Word. There's great encouragement there for all of us. That while we do our domain engagement, we can be occupied with the Word too. Isn't that fun? Paul was occupied with the Word. Testifying, and then there's a comma, and then he, he modifies what he means. He tells us what he means by being occupied with the Word. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent from now on. I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Paul was occupied with the word. We learn here some, some neat language. He was seeking to persuade people. Meaning to move them or affect them by kind words and motives. He wasn't a jerk. He was kind. His motives were pure. He was seeking to persuade. He was occupied. That is, he was holding fast. He was pressing together, pressing in on the task of preaching the gospel. He was testifying, bearing witness to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And even notice here, he was staying with a non-Christian Gentile convert to Judaism, Titius Justice. That's what worshiper of God means. (laughs) He found him a non-Christian roommate and sought to make disciples from him. That's cool. Now, I know sometimes in, in, in younger culture, you know, that some people... Some people use evangelism as an excuse to sin. Well, yes, I'm, I'm, all my friends are non-believers because I want to preach the gospel to them. But they're not really preaching the gospel. They're just like in deep. And they're using Jesus as their excuse for being in deep. It's not what Paul's doing here. I mean, Paul, follower of Jesus, intentionally hanging out with this Gentile convert to Judaism, preaching the gospel with him in his house. And we have to assume that the ministry is a success because we read in verse 8 that the ruler of the synagogue believes. So this Gentile convert to Judaism is going to the synagogue. Paul's staying at his house preaching the gospel to him and then going to synagogue with him and preaching the gospel and the ruler of the synagogue gets saved. And so you kind of have to assume Paul's ministry is kind of growing. Right? And we read later on in verse 11 to 17, or verse 12 to 17, that there's a new ruler of the synagogue because the old one got saved. Right? And so, Paul's occupied with the Word, and being occupied with the Word led him to hang out with lost people and go into the places where they might oppose him and preach the gospel in spite of the fact that the pattern of ministry had been hard. We see in verse 11 that Paul had 18 months of peaceful fruitfulness. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. God gave him 18 months of peaceful fruitfulness. Paul had been beat up. He had had his share of beat down. And God, being gracious and kind, gave him a fruitful ministry and gave him 18 months of reprieve. A little side note here. Jesus knows what you need when you need it. And he gave it to Paul when he needed it. He will give it to you. When you need it. Final observation. Or final sub point under our second observation. In verse 12 to 17. We see Paul receives a civil rescue from religious persecution. You read verse 12 to 17. 
after a year and six months, right, 18 months of peaceful, fruitful ministry, finally they make a united attack and they bring him before the government. And Galileo's like, "Mm, no, not my thing. Sorry. And they're so upset, they take the ruler to synagogue and, what? Beat him up. Didn't beat up Paul. God gave him a reprieve. Gave him a break. Even the civil government rescues him from religious persecution. How cool is that? That the Lord provided not only direct encouragement from a a word from the Lord, but He provided some situational encouragement as the kingdom advanced through this weak, yet powerful serving the Lord. So let's wrap up here with four ways we can obey this passage. How can we obey this? What can we take away from the planting of the church at Corinth? Number one, we should be encouraged that the kingdom advances even when we are weak. Therefore, don't quit when we're weak or down. We have been taught either Passively or actively to quit when it gets hard. Paul didn't break from ministry. And I'm not saying there's never an appropriate time to take a break. Don't hear that. Okay, do not hear that. I want you to hear that we need to be encouraged that the kingdom advances even when we're weak. Therefore, don't quit when you're weak or down. Paul's been beat up, beat up, beat up, beat up, beat up. And then God sends him to this gross city. Of which he has learned to expect, get beat up, and gives him a break. If Paul had quit in Athens, he would have never tasted the grace of God in Corinth. Therefore, dear Christian, don't quit when you're weak or down. Number two, we should be encouraged that perhaps our most fruitful seasons will be when we are weak. So work for and expect fruitfulness even when we are weak. Lest you think that that's made up, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. I want you to hear Paul. I want you to hear him speak about ministry in the midst of weakness. Now you remember, just keep, keep in mind, this is 2 Corinthians. So Paul wrote 2 Corinthians to the church at Corinth. That he planted. Right? And he planted Corinth after being stoned, beat up, kicked out of town. All kinds of bad ministry experience by Paul. And what does Paul remind them of? So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. How did Paul view his physical ailment? A gift from God to keep me humble. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Woo! Are you, I just shouted in Baptist church, right? Do, do you understand the encouragement? We find the power of Christ at the most vulnerable moments. It is so easy to believe and buy the lie that ministry and great work happens by our strength. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. We should be encouraged that perhaps our most fruitful seasons will be when we are weak. Therefore, work for and expect fruitfulness when we are weak. Don't quit. Number three, how can we obey this? We should be encouraged that perhaps our most fruitful work will be messy. So don't be discouraged and quit when messy things happen. Don't think that South Rome will always be peachy. Don't think that two campuses is always going to be clean. And easy. And well attended. Don't think that planting churches won't cost us financially and practically. We should be encouraged that perhaps our most fruitful work will be messy. So don't be discouraged when things happen messily. Paul's ministry at Corinth. Now you got to keep in mind, he didn't get stoned, ran out of town, called a hayseed. Which they did to him at Athens. But Paul will have to deal with an issue of church discipline, chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, of gross immorality. A kind of which, Paul says, Gentiles don't even do it. OMG! What are you thinking? Now, if Paul looked at his ministry and said, geez, things are getting sideways. God must not be in it. Time to quit. Right? Things would have not... We might not have second, first and second Corinthians. But some of Paul's most fruitful ministry was messy ministry because they had to enact church discipline over an issue of gross... Beyond Gentile immorality. Paul would have a tenuous relationship with the church. If you've never read First and Second Corinthians, you need to read it and pay attention because you'll pick up on a tension between Paul and Corinth because it's thick. Paul talks big in his letters, but when he shows up, he's a little guy and he's not a good talker. Moron. They don't say moron, but that's kind of the feel you get. And, and you see that Paul wrestles with this comparison they make against him and what are so-called super apostles. Really good preachers versus you. You don't have a podcast, Paul. And your blog stinks. And you're not real entertaining. And you preach long. I read about that guy. heard about the guy in Acts that fell out of the third story because he fell asleep when you were preaching. They had to bring him back to life. Good job, Paul. I mean, you get this, this tenuous relationship with the church at Corinth. You get perceptions of Paul's ministry being inferior, less than. And then you get Paul's necessary correction 
of the church is libertine attitudes toward their sexuality bleeding over into the abuse of the Lord's Supper and abuse of spiritual gifts. So how they approach their relationships bleeds into their abuse of the Lord's Supper and their abuse of spiritual gifts. And Paul has to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14 how to correct that. So don't be discouraged when ministry gets messy. Ministry will be messy because we are undoing the curse. And the curse is messy. And as we bring the gospel to bear into the brokenness of the curse, Jesus is able to make straight what is crooked, but it will be messy. There's nobody sitting in this room whose life is unmessy. There are just levels of which we are not being true to each other in what we share. Which is one of the reasons you need to do covenant community together under the same mission, vision, and banner so that you can be messy together. And in that, God is able to hit straight licks with crooked sticks, as the old saying goes. So don't be discouraged when things get messy. Ministry, effective ministry, really never adds up. Fourth and finally... How can we obey this? We should be encouraged that hard, complicated, challenging, and messy ministry is just the way it is this side of the fall. And God can and will see us through it as He builds His kingdom. And He will build His kingdom. I want to point you finally here. Acts 18.10 For I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you. And the Lord kept His promise. Why? For I have many in this city who are my people. This is cool. This is cool, cool, cool. Ministries will be hard, complicated, difficult, challenging, messy. It's just the way it is. The side of the fall and God can see us through it as He builds His kingdom. And He will build His kingdom. Why? Because he has many people that are his. Listen, these are people. This is, I know this, this blows some people's theology out of the water because they don't want to, there's certain parts of the Bible we just don't want to believe because it infringes on our humanistic, self-centered, man-centered worldviews. But there are a lot of people in the city Jesus was going to save. He hadn't saved them yet and he wanted Paul to know they're mine. And I will save them. Hadn't saved them yet. But I want you, Paul, to not be afraid. Keep preaching. I'm with you. And they're not going to get you in this city. Why? Because i got a bunch of people I'm going to save. So get busy, Paul. Listen. We should be encouraged that although ministry is difficult, Jesus will build His kingdom. He is going to do a great work in Rome. He's evidenced that over and over and over again through this little fellowship. As He does gigantic things through us. Why? Because there are many people here who are His that are not yet in the kingdom. And there are many people in our country who are His who are not yet in the kingdom. And He will bring them. So when it gets hard, be encouraged. He will build His kingdom. And He will do it through broken and weakened servants just like us. There's great encouragement for us in that three rivers. Because you're broken and weakened. 
I'm broken and weakened, and therefore we are great instruments in the Lord's hands because His strength is perfected in weakness. You want to worship Him? I do. Let's pray. Father, we come before You today uh, recognizing the glorious reality that You are building Your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Kingdom is coming. And so we pray, Lord, bring the kingdom and do your will on this earth as it's done in heaven, that your name would be made great. Give us everything we need to pull that off. Everything we need to pull that off. To obediently serve you and your kingdom. Father, I pray you guard us from the lies of the evil one and keep us in your truth. Father, I pray for increased, increased faith to trust you, even when it's messy. Lord, for all of us, help us to be encouraged today that, like Paul, we're your instruments. And help us to be obedient in the little things that you give us today. Build your kingdom to do your work. Lord, I pray now that you would break down any barrier of unbelief that keeps us from hearing your word. I pray that you would cause us to see and savor more of Christ. Give us strength to overcome, strength to persevere. And even when we're weak, be strong. I pray in Jesus' name.